chapter 3, starting in verse 14. But let me begin by asking you a, a question. Imagine if we had, would ask this question to just someone that we ran across on, on the street. And the question is this. Why is the church important? Think about that. Why is the church of Jesus Christ, why is it important? Now, Stephen Cole suggests that uh, there would probably be a wide range of answers to this question to the man on the street. Some would just laugh at the question because for them, the church is not important in any way. So they would just laugh. Others might see the church in the same category as museums. They both preserve things from the past. They're nice to place to visit on rainy days where you can observe how quaintly people used to live, but they're out of touch with our modern world. Others might couch their their answers in political terms. They view the church as a, a powerful voting block to oppose the erosion of morality and preserve the family. Or some might respond to our question and by saying that they see the church's importance as a, a social institution. It helps to meet physical needs of the poor and emotional needs of those who are lonely and distraught. Or it ministers to people at pivotal times in their lives, birth, marriage, death, and various times of crisis. But even for many churchgoers in America, the church is important because it meets many of their personal needs. When they go and they shop around for a church, they look for what makes them feel good each week. They, they, they look to get a weekly boost that enables them to cope with life. But if you were to stop and you were to ask the Apostle Paul why the church is important, he would say something so much different than those answers. Not that the church doesn't help in some of those areas. But the Apostle Paul's answer would be, The church is important because it is one of the most important forces and institutions on earth. It is more important than any governmental institution. It's more important than any university or organized body of learning. The church is more important than that. The church is important because the church has been called to be a a pillar and support of the truth of God in a world that is seeking to make the truth of their own making. See, the church has been called to hold up the proclamation of the truth of salvation only found in Jesus Christ. And while we want to meet physical needs, we want to meet physical poverty, there's a spiritual poverty that the church must stand up and continually proclaim and be the pillar and support of truth. Amen? So when we come to 1 Timothy, and as we look at this, Paul understood the importance of the church. And this is why he writes in 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, he says this, He says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I want you to know, I want you, so that you will know, I write, how you ought to conduct himself. That is, in other words, I want you to know as how you as a church as a whole should operate. I want you to know how you as individual members of the church, as individual followers of the church of Christ, how you should behave and live as the church and be the church in a world that needs the truth of Jesus Christ. 
I want you to know how to be the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. Now, when Paul writes this, when he says these things, uh, it's probably referring to all that he wrote, but it's probably even more particularly what he's written in chapters 2 and chapters 3, where he's talked about what should be of first importance in the church, that his prayer should be at a, a place of primacy in the time of congregational worship. He's talking about the roles of, of women and men in the proclamation of, of the Word of God. And as we saw last week, we learned uh, that in last, actually the last two weeks in this passage, we learned how there are officers within the, within the church called elders who are to be servant leaders. And that there will be deacons who are lead servants who enable these servant leaders to focus on their primary calling to proclaim and teach the truth of God's Word. To equip people to live out the truth. Because, see, the reason why is because the church as a whole is to uphold the truth. Now, what he gives us here, though, is three things I think will be helpful to help us, first of all, understand how we are to grasp God's calling us as a church, how we are to be a church that can uphold the truth of God's Word. And the first image that he gives us is that he, he calls us the household of God. Now, the idea behind this term is that of family relationship. And Paul is undoubtedly drawing on the, the patriarchal society of, of the ancient Near East. He probably has in his mind the, the multi-generational family structure where a young man married in those days, and a, a father would then provide a, another place. He would build onto his home to provide a place for this son and his new family to stay. And then eventually, often over time, he would give the, the authority and the leadership in the home to the son. And the reality is, when we think of the church as the household of God, it's God the Father who is in charge. And He has given, He has granted and placed the reign of leadership in the church to Jesus Christ. And you and I are members of this household who are under this leadership. We're part of God's church. He's the one in charge. It is Christ who is the head. And the reality of what the, the church should be is the church should not be a business. The church shouldn't be a country club. The church shouldn't be a place for just entertainment. The church shouldn't be a place of, of, of a military group or some other organization. Now, while we have organization in order to be wise stewards, the church is first and foremost to be the family of God. It's a household. And that you and I should relate to each other as family. I read uh, recently of an American missionary in Papua New Guinea. He asked a native for a best route to get from one place to the other. And the native kind of looked at him at first, and he was kind of a puzzled look on his face. And then he replied, he said this. He said, there are all kinds of routes, friend. He continued, we could go through the bush and visit some friends along the way. Or we could take the coastal route. The sun will be strong, but an old man lives there, and he knows many stories from World War II. If we take the road, we can, take, we can talk to some of the members of my wife's family who live on this side of the river. And the whole time the missionary is just listening to this and he's getting frustrated. And he's thinking, I, I don't want to know about this. All I want to know is what is the best route to get where we need to go? And then it hit him. In the mind of the, those in Papua New Guinea, the best route wasn't the most efficient route. The quickest route, that's how us Americans like to think. 
the best route was with those they could have a relationship along the way. And again, why the church is called to have organization. And there are places that we should be efficient in order to be wise stewards. The first and foremost, the church is not just to be a place where you and I get together for an hour or 15 minutes a week and say, I'm done, I'm out of here. The church is to be a place where we relate to each other beyond this service, but we're the family of God. Let me tell you why this is so important. It's so important because if we're called to uphold the truth of God's Word, we've got to grasp and understand that you and I, we need each other in order to fulfill this call to uphold God's truth. We need each other to come alongside of each other and speak love in truth. We need each other to come alongside of each other, encourage each other, and build us up. Say, here, here's what God's Word says, and, and it'll build us each other up. We need each other to care for each other. We need each people there to, to support our back when people tell us, hey, what you believe is a bunch of nonsense. We need a brother or sister in Christ to come along and say, no, it's not. I believe it, you believe it, he believes it. And most of all, God says it's true. And you uphold them in that. In my fellowship family, we met last night. And we are, uh, unfortunately, we have a member in our, our family in our group that's leaving. And, uh, but we're excited for them. Because the reason that they're leaving, our fellowship family, the reason that they're leading the church is because they've been called, this one particular man is a professor, and he's been called to go and to, to be a professor at an institution in another state. And amidst his department where he's going to be and where he's going to serve, he will be the only Christian amongst all atheists. And so what did we do? We got together to pray for him because we're excited about what God's calling them to do. But we also want to uphold them and be the family of God and pray that they might be empowered, that they might be strengthened, and that when they get there, they'll find other people in the household of God that might support them as well. See, that's why we need to understand that we're called to be the household of God. The second imagery that is, is given here is the imagery of the church of the living God. Now the emphasis here is on the living God. There's no article before church in the Greek. It's emphasizing it's the church of the living God. This is a common term that you would find numerous times in the, the Old Testament to emphasize the contrast with, between the God Yahweh versus the God of all those dead idols. If you remember uh, David in 1 Samuel chapter 17? Remember when David was a little shepherd boy? And he was, he's taking food out to his brothers because they're out in a valley and they're, they're fighting the Philistines. But the whole battle is held up and there's this one huge giant about nine feet tall. All right? And David walks up and what he hears this giant doing is he hears them blaspheming. And guess what he, he says? He, he's saying, what, what, what are you guys doing? Why are you letting this Philistine, this Philistine, blaspheme the armies of the Living God is what he says. In other words, in David's mind, it says, what are you guys so afraid of? What are you afraid of, of this, this guy who worships a, a false god named Dagon? He's not real. What are you guys afraid of? Because the God that we worship, the God Yahweh, he's the living God. So get up out there and represent God. And so when I hear this, when I hear the term, we are the church of the living God, we've got to remember that we're not in this all by ourselves. 
living God speaks of, of the reality of His eternality, His, uh, His, His immortality. That He is living and that He provides life. And guess who He provides life to? You and I. He gives us spiritual life. And this living God that David so upheld, it's the same living God that when you and I put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, He comes and He lives and He dwells in us to empower us to be the church. So here's my question. What are we afraid of? Why are we so often afraid of being the church? And understand there are giants of all kinds out amongst this world. But let me tell you something, believers. Listen to me. This is where you can say amen, okay? Listen to me, all right? We don't worship a dead God. The one who rules and reigns over our church, he's not dead. The one who was resurrected to provide the salvation for you and I, which makes us a part of the church, guess what? Tell me. He's alive. He's living. And He dwells in you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So, church, why are we afraid? Be the church. Uphold the truth. Who cares what they say about the truth we proclaim? Because we serve the living God. Amen? Third thing here, though, he says, not only is the church of the living God, but it's the pillar and support of truth. Now, the imagery that he has in mind here is he has the imagery of, of the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana. There was this humongous, it had like 167 pillars that hold up a surface 60% greater than, than a football field. And these huge pillars were often, they're made of marble and often had jewels and overlaid sometimes with gold and they, they, they held up this great temple. And that's certainly what he has in mind. But what he's saying here is, guys, you guys are the pillar and support of truth. And so they have this imagery in mind. He says, you guys are the pillar. You, 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 and why at first this, these pillars were given to be tributes to kings, that, that was only secondary to the, the main thing, is that they upheld the building and the beauty of it. They held up the weights. And so he says, you're the pillar. You, you hold up something. And what your, what your pillars are founded on is they're, they're a support, they're a foundation for the truth. And see, that's what you and I are as the church. We're pillars and supports of truth. Now let me make something very clear here. We as the church are not the source of truth. What I mean by this is it's not that someone must come to us or it's not that this idea that you know, you come to us and we're the only source and that you can only know the truth through our church. That's not the idea here. We know that the source of truth is Christ himself. But we are pillars and supports of that truth who through faith in Jesus Christ, we've been made a part of the church and what you and I are to do is we're supposed to support that truth. That is, that is the thing. It's the truth of God's Word that we should always fall back on, we should always stand on. Anything we start or anything we ever do ought to found its, find its grounding in the truth of God's Word. That, that is, a watching world should be able to look in at us, and just like they looked in and they saw this temple of Artemis, they ought to see the temple of the living God. And what, he's, what we're proclaiming is the truth of God in our lives. That's what they ought to see in us. Tony Evans says, he says this, Now Jesus, who is the source of truth, was one of those true preachers who eventually made his congregation smaller with his sermons. 
He would have big crowds following him. And then he would come up with a, with a line like this. Unless you deny your father, your mother and father, yet your own life, you cannot be my disciple. And the Bible says people left. Why? Why did they leave? Well, let me tell you why. Here's what, what, what Evan says. He says, because Jesus never let the crowd control the truth. And as pillars in, in support of the truth, we must never let the crowd control the truth that we are called to proclaim. We must, never, we must always say that despite when people say it's intolerant, we must proclaim the truth. When people legislate sin, which is sin, according to God's Word, we must proclaim the truth. Now, we don't do this in a, in a spirit of, of Bible bashing. We do this in a spirit of speaking the truth in love and grace. But we never let the crowd control the truth in our call to be pillars in support of the truth of God's Word. Amen? So how do I do this, Matt? Let me just give you one, something I learned a long time ago. I'm going to do this real quick. All right? I just want you to hold up your hand. You don't have to hold up high. I know some of you will be real shy. You don't do this right here. That's okay. All right? All right, I want you to start with this finger. All right? Here's how you, how you become a better supporter and pillar of truth. The first one is you hear God's Word. All right? So just one, one finger. All right? Here's God's Word. All right? Second thing. Thank you for going along with me. All right? You hear God's Word. You, you study God's Word. All right? You all right? Got that? You hear God's Word. You study God's Word. All right? You memorize God's Word. All right? Then you meditate on God's Word. And then the fifth thing, this is real important, you obey it. You share it. You live it out. And if you'll do that, if you'll do that, you'll get a grasp on God's Word. You'll get a grasp on it. You'll be able to hold it. Because see, the reality is if, if you just have just a few of those fingers, Chris, stand up here for a second. If you just try to hold it with just a few of these fingers, all right, if you just do it like that, don't, don't put your thumb on it because you're not obeying it yet. If you just, if you just study it, you just memorize it, but then if I do that, it's going to fall off, isn't it? But guess what? If you do this, Chris grabs a hold of it. He's living it, obeying it. It's hard to get out of there, isn't it? Yeah. And then you're ready to go. You're ready to be the pillar. Oh, gosh. That's awesome. Way to be a pillar, all right? Give him a hand. And that's how you and I... See, it's not just me at my job. It's just not Grant's job. It's just not the elder's job. When we lead the way... You are called to be pillars and supports of truth as well. And when we do that, we become what uh, Bill Heibel calls contagious Christians. He, he, in his book, he speaks of a letter that he, he wrote or he read about from a relatively new Christian to the person whose life had influenced hers so greatly. And here's what this, this uh, lady wrote to the person who influenced her for Christ. She says this, you know, when we met, I began to discover a new vulnerability, a warmth, and a lack of pretense that impressed me. I saw in you a thriving spirit, no signs of internal stagnation anywhere. I could tell you were a growing person, and I like that. I saw that you had strong self-esteem, not based on the fluff of self-help books, but on something a whole lot deeper. I saw that you live by convictions and priorities and not just by convenience, selfish pleasure and financial gain. And I had never met anyone like that before. I felt a depth of love and concern as you listened to me and didn't judge me. 
You tried to understand me. You sympathized and you celebrated with me. You demonstrated kindness and generosity, not just to me, but to other people as well. And you stood for something. You were willing to go against the grain of society and follow what you believed to be true, no matter what people said and no matter how much it cost you. And for those reasons and a whole host of others, I found myself really wanting what you had. Now that I've become a Christian, I wanted to write to tell you I'm grateful beyond words for how you lived out your Christian life in front of me. That's what it means to be the pillar in support of truth. That's what it means to depend on the living God to work through you to influence others. That's what it means to be of a family mindset that loves and cares for people. That's what God's calling us to. Now, what we, the, the message that we proclaim in the midst of this, as we grasp onto this calling, the message that we always proclaim is Christ, the revelation and the means of godliness. That's at the center of what we proclaim and what we seek to live out in front of people. You see this in, in verse 16. It says, by common confession... And what I'm about to read with you and share with you here is, is this believed to be some sort of early church hymn or confession or creed of, of some sort. It says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Remember, last week I spoke and I told you how mystery is a technical term in the Bible to often speak of those things that were once unclear to people, particularly, I think, in this context of those who didn't know Christ. All right. In this context, those who didn't know how godliness is truly found. That is, the mystery was that godliness has now come to be revealed in the fact that the only one who is truly godly is Jesus Christ, because He is God. And the only means of us to attain or or to become and to grow in righteousness, to earn salvation or to have salvation given to us, I should say, is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the context makes this very clear, that it's Christ who is the mystery of godliness. Now, look at verse 16, though, because here, here's, here it is. It's a, it's a, a hymn or, or creed or confession. So you can imagine that maybe sometimes in the ancient church that they would actually get up and they would say this together. So I, I'm going to do something, all right, because I like to keep you awake, okay? I'm going to ask you to confess this with me, okay? That, I mean, I want you to read along with me, okay? Now, one time I did a uh, Methodist funeral because my wife comes from a Methodist family and they wanted to, I mean, the Apostles' Creed's a big thing. But I grew up Baptist, and I had no idea about that stuff. And I messed the whole thing up. I just, I just started to say, hey, let's quote it. And then all of a sudden, her grandmother stopped. It just kind of stopped. And we all stand up when you do the Apostles' Creed, okay? So what I'm going to do, all right, this isn't the Apostles' Creed, but because I want to keep you moving, I'm going to have you all stand up, okay? And we're going we're gonna to confess this together. I know you, you hate this. Some of you are looking at me like, what? What are you doing? I was comfortable. All right? That's why I'm doing this. All right? So together with me, let's say it together. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And all God's people said what? Go ahead and have a seat. So what does all this mean? All right? Let me make it real quick and simple to you. First of all, he who was revealed in the flesh, that is God, came and he took on human flesh to be the payment to sin for us. That would remind him of that. 
This next phrase was vindicated in the Spirit. As he was declared righteous in the Spirit. There's debate about this. I think it means the reality is that the deity of Christ was vindicated through the work of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can see references to that in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. He was seen by angels. That is, the angels saw and they witnessed his coming. They've also witnessed his resurrection. And they witnessed too and they worship him now where he is. And then it says this, proclaimed among the nations. God, Christ said in Romans 1.8, you're to be my witnesses into Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And guess what? He's being proclaimed. And not only is he being proclaimed, all right, here's what ought to get you excited. He's being believed on, not just in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, but he's being believed on in the uttermost parts of the world. He's being believed on in the uttermost parts of the world. It started there with a small band of 12 guys, and it's spreading throughout the world. And persecution can't stop it. Legislation can't stop it. People are continuing to believe because he, it is the church of the living God. And at last it says here he's taken up in glory. That is, Christ has ascended, and guess what? He's awaiting glory someday to come back and to get you and I who believe. And that's why they would confess that. They would remind themselves of it. They remind themselves that godliness is found in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ, not in other stuff which false teachers were trying to say is where you find godliness. Now this is important because as we turn to uh, chapter 4, verse 1, it's important that we preach Christ. There was once a church in England, and outside on their church it said this, We preach Christ crucified. But on the outside of this church, there was ivy. And you guys know how ivy works. It keeps growing and growing and growing. And over time, that ivy grew up over that sign. And it says, we, just, we preach Christ. All right? And then over time, the ivy continued to grow. It continued to grow. And for eventually where it just said, we preach. And as time went on, that ivy continued to grow. Where eventually, the church died. And the reality is, because Satan knows that the church is to be the pillar and support of God's truth, he is always trying to get his fingers in the church. There are, there are forms of ivy that are growing up in the church. And I'm not talking about a building. To plant seeds of discord. To plant seeds of false teaching within the church. It's always happening. Verse 1 in chapter 4 says this. It says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. That is, in latter times, and I believe this latter times is simply referring from the time that Jesus went to be in the Father and between the time that He'll come back here again. And in that time, He says, Don't be surprised. As a matter of fact, expect it. There are going to be people that fall away from the faith. This is what we call apostatize. That's, that's, the, that's the root word here. It's the word of apostate. And the idea here is, is, is that they are is something, that, well, the word apostate is always used in the sense of betraying something or someone. It's, it's a choice people make. And from the context that we see here, it's important to see that an apostate is not necessarily one who gives up the profession of the Christian faith. That is... The person may not, they may not stop claiming to be a Christian. 
What they give up is some or all of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, particularly the mystery of godliness, which is the personal work of Jesus Christ. That's the idea here. I think that's the concern that, that, that Paul has. And so what he tells us, that if, if, we're, if we're to uphold the truth, then we have to be ready to deal with apostasy. And I'll add to that a false teaching. So therefore, the first thing that you and I must do is that we must be on guard. We must have a grip on God's Word, as I illustrated. We must realize while the, the elders as their primary calling is to defend and guard and protect, you too can be a part of guarding as you seek to be what God is calling you to be, the pillar and support of truth. Well, how does this happen? Well, there's a spiritual battle. Look what it says here. Some fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. That's pretty strong language. I mean, is Paul saying that you know, they, were, they were teaching demonology in there? Is that what he's saying? Now, the, the idea here, when you hear demons, don't think false teaching went into the church with the name of Church of Satan printed on it. That's, that's not the idea here. Nor is this a reference to doctrines about deacons. The idea here is it's, these are doctrines that find their source in the deceptions of demon-inspired thinking. We'll see in a moment what this teaching was particularly, but Paul's saying, he, he gets right to the poor. He, just, he doesn't go, mm, they're just kind of, they're just a little off. You know, they've got a lot of good things that they're teaching. They're just a little off in this area. No, he goes, no, what? No, uh These are deceitful spirits, and this is doctrine of demons, folks. He didn't play around. He doesn't play around with the mystery of godliness is what he's saying. You know, Satan is much more subtle and clever to just come in and say doctrine of demons. As one writer described, he often drapes their doctrines in the respectable, even pious robes of religion. He, he coats the teaching with things that appeal to the flesh because he knows our flesh is weak and is often presented with charm and charisma and confidence and about various matters. False teachers influenced by deceitful spirits often use Scripture almost always out of context, and that's a big clue for you right there. Always read in context, because false teachers often twist it and, and take it out of context to give the appearance of, of good faith teaching. Let me just tell you right now, there's a bunch of nonsense on your television. There's a thing called the Word of Faith movement, and it's nonsense. But does God bless? Yes. But does God guarantee things if you give so much? No. So what happens is people start paying attention to this because it appeals to their flesh. There's something in the teaching like, yeah, I want that. And so they end up getting deceived by it. And who are these teachers? Look what verse 2 says. These teachers are by means of hypocrisy of liars. The, the, the etymology of the word uh, for hypocrisy is it's, it's from a word that indicates the assuming of a mask. It was, it was used to describe actors. Because actors in the Greek culture would wear masks. And that's what a hypocrite is. They, they would wear these masks and they would put up this front, but the reality is that's not really who they were behind it. And, and what the text says here is they were doing this, this deception, this teaching. They were falling away because of the hypocrisy of, of literally the word is lie speakers for lie. 
That's what it literally is in the Greek. I like that. They are hypocritical lie speakers. And the reason they are, they are, they are do this, and this is why I want to, I, I think this is why so many on TV who distort and hurt people is because what it describes here is because their conscience have been seared as with a branding iron. It's, it, it's the imagery that a branding, what, what Paul is taking is the imagery of a branding iron, which was often would cauterize something. It would, it would be put on a sore or something and it would deaden, eventually deaden the nerves in there. And that's what's happened to the consciousness of these hypocritical eye speakers. That over time and the continual misinformation they've given, their, their, their consciences, which, which determine and help them to understand right and wrong, their consciences have been deadened. So they have no problem misleading somebody. They have no problem cheating people. Over vacation, I finally watched that show, The Duck Dynasty. That's pretty funny, all right? I finally got the time. I don't have cable, but when I go away on vacation, they have cable there. So I'm like, hey, all right, 12 hours of Duck Dynasty, all right? Just kidding, I didn't, all right, because I had to take a nap there too. So, but, so they, they made these bird call things and stuff, but I was doing some reading, and they did a lot of other stuff too. It was funny. They actually made a, a, a redneck water park. That was so cool. I think I might do that in my backyard because we have a little bed of drainage ditch out there that kids could use. I'll keep moving. Uh, but duck calls, they have these duck calls and they're duck hunters that they, they use decoys. As you can tell, I'm not a duck hunter. But uh, today these decoys, though, have gotten pretty fancy. All right, that's what I'm told. These decoys, they, they quack like ducks, they move like ducks, they, they look like ducks, they act like ducks. And in fact, the ducks think they are ducks and the real ducks end up being dead ducks because of these false ducks. And the reality is, for the church, there are many roving decoys out there. Their, 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 are, their job is to extricate from us the truth of our faith. And they're, they're targeting those who perhaps aren't even yet in the faith, but they also target those who are in the faith as well. And their job is to, to draw them and deceive them away from that truth. For the unbelievers to keep them from saving knowledge of Christ. For the believer, it's to make them ineffective for Christ. And so within our churches and and in our environments, we we are surrounded by decoys all around us. Demonic decoys. And you and I as the church, we must be on guard. We must know that there's a spiritual battle. And we must test spirits and the character. That's why character traits are given of the leaders within the church. We must test the character of people, the integrity of people. We must test the teaching of the Word, that their teaching must not be pulled out of context, but should be interpreted in the midst of context. So Paul analyzes the teaching. He says this in verse 3. He says, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. What was going on here is these teachers were, they were purveying a, a false asceticism. It's a big word, I know. Asceticism is the idea that abstinence from physical things is essential for spiritual purity. What, what, what perhaps happened in the church here at Ephesus is that it may have been being influenced by 
Jewish legalism and some of the teachings on, on eating. And it may have been some early form of what is later called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is this idea where uh, that the spirit is good and that everything that is uh, material is evil. So in order to be more spiritual in the world, we must kind of remove ourselves from much of what is material. And Paul, Paul brings this up. And basically he's saying this is nonsense. He's saying, well, why there is singleness, there's nothing wrong with being single. And while fasting may be a helpful thing and it should be a part of prayer at times, to take these kind of truths of what these false teachers were doing and say that putting them forth as some sort of demand and saying that they merit you some side of favor or standing, whether it's salvation or sanctification, is a lie. The reality is this kind of teaching still goes on today. So how does Paul handle it? Well, he does. Well, here's what he does. He compares this to what the teaching of Scripture says. He responds with the whole of Scripture. He says marriage and food are good things which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. He says, you guys know this. You know the truth. He's saying these are good things. This idea of marriage and this idea of of, of food, these are good things. For everything, he says in verse 4, created by God is good and nothing is is rejected. Now this doesn't mean, guys, this doesn't mean you should eat everything. This doesn't mean you should eat too much. Okay? So stay on your diet. But what he's saying is nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified, it is, it is it's set apart to holiness by the Word of God or the Scriptures and prayer. In essence, he's going back to creation and he's saying, guys, God created marriage and food. And in that context, if you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, he said all this was good. Matter of fact, he said it's not good for man to be alone. So he created him a helpmate. He instituted marriage. Well, you might say, well, didn't Paul say some should remain single? Yes. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul tells us that some were gifted to remain single. Christ, who was single, upheld marriage. Paul, who most likely was single, said that marriage represents the relationship of Christ and the church. It's good. That's all that's coming out in this verse to these people, I think. Well, didn't they just eat, uh, this is another objection, well, didn't they just eat vegetables in the Garden of Eden? Yes. But in Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, God said we could eat everything. Well, well, didn't didn't Israel have a dietary restriction? Yeah, God seems to have made certain distinctions for them so that they would be distinguished amongst the, the, the people around them. But Jesus said in Mark 7, 20, that all things were clean. Matter of fact, God gave Peter a vision in Acts chapter 10. Especially say you can eat everything. The whole point of all this is that marriage and food have been sanctified. As God says, they're all right. These are not standards of righteousness in your life. By you abstaining from being married or by you keeping away from certain foods, that doesn't make you godly in God's sight. Only Jesus Christ does that. 
Instead of haggling over being married, not being married, if you want to get married, get married. Just marry a godly person. If you want to eat, eat, but just eat in moderation. In response to these things, he says, hey, remember, God has set apart as good. And our response to it is just to offer prayer of great thanks for the good things that he's given. It's okay to have material things. Just know who they come from and know who you should use them for, is what he's saying. That's how he handles this apostasy. That's how he handles this false teaching. He's on guard for it. He realizes their spiritual battle. And he comes back and he analyzes the, the, the beliefs of, of these false teachers and then he responds with the truth. And that's how you and I should handle it. One of my joys and one of my greatest challenges of, of being a pastor is coming alongside a brother and sister who has been led astray in some false doctrine. And it's disheartening to see when they continue in that, despite your counsel and you pointing to God's Word, but it's such a joy when you can use by the Holy Spirit to guide them and to, to lead them and show them that, hey, what you're being taught is something that was just twisted because here, let me point you and show you where the truth is and what the whole Word of God says about this matter. And guess what? This isn't just my job or the elder's job. It's to be the job of all of us. That when we see a brother or sister who's going astray, the thing that we open up is we open up God's Word. It doesn't mean you'll have all the answers. Sometimes you need to come and you need to ask others who might have the answers. And sometimes you may ask us, you may ask me, and I don't have the answers, and I've got to go look for the answers. But we're in this together to be the pillar and supporter of the truth of Jesus Christ, the mystery of godliness in a world full of heresy, in a world that's seeking to invade its false teaching into the church. May you and I seek to support and proclaim the truth of Christ. Amen. Dear God, we come to you and we thank you and we praise you for your word. And Lord, my prayer is now that you will take your word and you will move amongst your people because, Lord, you are the living God. And, Lord, the, the only way that these truths are going to become real and active and live is if we, your people, will yield ourselves to you and depend upon you and act in obedience and let you, through your word, work through us. I pray, Lord, you will help your people to continue to get a greater grasp of truth. May they be a people who hear the truth, they study it, they memorize it, they meditate on it, and they seek to apply it to their lives, Lord so that you might use all of us to be your church, the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ and God's people said,